welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Today, the Anti-Architect meets Building Science Fight Club. I'm excited to have Christine Williamson as my guest here on the Anti-Architect podcast. Christine Williamson has spent her career in building science forensics, discovering why buildings fall down, and working with owners, architects, and builders to remedy their problems. Her new construction consulting helps architects use building science not only to mitigate risk of failure, but also to help them make their projects as energy efficient as they are beautiful. She is the founder of the Instagram account at Building Science Fight Club, an educational project that teaches architects about building science and construction. The Building Science Fight Club's Instagram has over 80,000 followers. Christine's professional experience includes building science consulting for the restoration of Belvedere Castle in New York City's Central Park, forensic investigations of building failures at the air traffic control tower of LAX, and the Wheeler Opera House in Aspen, among many other projects. She offers new construction risk mitigation consulting for residential towers, mid-rise mixed-use buildings, and developer-based homes, as well as some of the most extraordinary private residences around the world. For existing buildings, she investigates failures related to enclosure design and material and installation defects. These failures include leaks, corrosion, rot, mold, odor, and poor indoor air quality. This is extremely relevant since Hurricane Ida's recent path of destruction from Louisiana to the Northeast. Christine is a member and former chair of the ASHRAE Technical Committee, which is the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. She received her Bachelor's of Arts from Princeton University and her Master's of Architecture from the New School of Architecture and Design in San Diego, California. I discovered Christine, like many others, with her unique Instagram account, Building Science Fight Club. Um, Christine, I'm super excited to have you here and uh, have this conversation. Thanks for, for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, um, I'm glad to glad to be doing this. Yeah, awesome. So, um, you know, let's jump right into it. Um, if you had to pick one thing that annoys you most about architects, what might that be? That annoys me? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I, I like our profession. I think we're pretty awesome. I agree. Um, what, annoys, what annoys me about the profession? Um, I think... I think sort of there's a, uh, maybe this isn't a profession, but there's a really big disconnect. There's a disconnect between our, this is my, my sort of lane is technical competence. And so I, I think that what annoys me about the profession is sometimes we overstate the, um, difficulty of the technical components 
And, um, and as a result, we get really intimidated by stuff that actually ends up not being all that intimidating. We end up delegating uh, stuff that is rightly our responsibility to consultants mm. and engineers. And uh, I, I, I think we over, in some cases, we over delegate, delegate these things because we feel ill-equipped to deal with them. Uh, these things ourselves. And, and uh, I'd like to change that. I'd like us to be better equipped to deal with these things, but the totally sort of, agree. Uh, yeah. preemptive kind of intimidation. Cause we're, I think this is very common for a lot of creative people where we're very creative. The creative mind gets intimidated by technical concepts. And, um, and I think that's a shame because I think that the technical stuff a good understanding of it actually permits us to be more creative, not less creative. And um, anyway, that's yeah, no, I totally agree. So the the you know one of my gripes is that we've given away so many aspects of our profession to other consultants, right, into these sort of expert lanes, right? right. Even something you know when I started out my career, uh, you know, I always chose all the lighting inside, uh, you know, if it was an interior space. Now we don't choose a single light ever, other than maybe a decorative light. You know, somehow the lighting consultant does all of that work. And, you know, we used to do the calculations and figure out how bright it would be in the space. And I thought I was pretty good at that, but apparently I wasn't, right? And, you know, <laughs> and neither was any other architect. They all had to do it. You know, they all had to give that away. Or... I mean, I see why this happens in that our profession is increasingly specialized and to be this sort of generalist is is difficult. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I get why it is the way it is, or I guess I get part of why it is the way it <laughs> is. Um, and you can't, it, it's not reasonable for every architect to be equally as good at all of these things. It's, true. it's you know, it's hard and for all building types, right? Yep. Like, um, sure, maybe you're comfortable doing the lighting in a house, but are you comfortable doing the lighting in a laboratory or, I mean, uh, it could it could uh, it could get to the point of ridiculous where yep. we'd have to be like eighty or ninety years old before we <laughs> before we got our licenses or felt confident to practice. So exactly. I think it's okay to delegate to a certain extent, but I I wish we did it um, maybe with a little bit more intention rather than sort of a default position like this is too hard for me or I'm not going to understand this anyway. We're just going to give this to someone else. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So so in in reading about you, you seem self very self-aware, which is rare in our in our industry, right? Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the architectural education um, because it's come up in some of my previous podcasts with some other um, guests. You know, it's it is an amazing um, education. You know, it's very broad. You 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 learn so many different aspects of so many different parts of the architectural world, but there's an emphasis purely on design when it really comes down to it. And there's also this obsession with being a architect, right? Especially at a lot of the, you know, a lot of the the the, the larger architecture schools, it's you know, <clears throat> you're almost setting yourself up in a sense that you you have to be that in your career, or you know, you're you're not worthy, right? And and right. what ninety nine point nine nine percent are not going to be that, and that's okay. It's still a wonderful wonderful profession. Um, so, you know, tell us about your education. Cause I, I saw somewhere that you said, you know, you passed, you know, the architecture school part by the skin of your teeth. Tell us oh a little gosh, bit about your, your art there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think partially maybe some studio professors figured I wasn't actually going to do this anyway. So maybe they went a little easier on me. <laughs> There's no way she's really going to be a designer. I don't know. Yeah. I really struggled through school a lot. Um, I have a real appreciation for, uh, design, I guess, in this sort of, maybe the architecture profession as a child conceives of it. I have an appreciation for that, but that's not my particular strength. And what's really great about the profession is how big it is. And there's, there's room for a lot of different kinds of talents and areas of contribution and interest within, within the profession. So that's something that I think is really great. Um, school definitely favors sort of a, a narrow part of that. So I kind of figured like, well, if I can just make it through school, maybe I can, maybe I can find a spot for myself and maybe, and I think really actually a lot of people in school, like, yes, a lot of people really think that they're going to be star architects. <laughs> Me and my friends, we were pretty sure we were not <laughs> like, it was very obvious that we were, middle. I mean, now I'm going to insult my any friends who are listening to this, um, who are what, who grew up to be wonderful architects and very talented in their own right. Actually, that is true though. Yeah. Um, but they, they have, they have different experiences. They're working a, a lot of them now. I'm sort of right at the stage. Um, I graduated from graduate school in 2011. Okay. Um, and like a lot of friends, I'd done something else first. I, I wasn't straight through undergrad to, to graduate school. And so I, I'm at the stage now where a lot of my classmates are starting firms of their own. They're just, they're yep. just dipping their toe mm -hmm. in the water. And that's really, it's very satisfying and exciting to run your own business and design the, the kinds of, you know, they've fallen into certain kinds of, um, certain kinds of projects that really work for them. Yeah. One friend became kind of a developer architect who works primarily residential and residential stuff. Another one does vacation homes. Oh, wow. um, and then another one is sort of in straddling between uh, multifamily and, um, and, and that's just where he started in multi in multifamily and who knows where his ambitions will, will take him. But anyway, it's exciting. There's, there's, I guess there's just room for a lot of different kinds of people and uh, you don't have to, you don't have to be the, the star architect or if you're a failed star architect, you're not, that doesn't spell the end of your whole career. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a very good friend who was really same thing, you know, really just not good at the design stuff. He was a good BS artist. So he was able to kind of, he figured <laughs> out what the professors wanted to hear so he could kind of get, get himself through, but he never had intention of actually being an architect and he's a developer now, you know, it was sort of a yeah. means to get to yeah. the next level for himself. He wanted to be able to, you know, it seemed like a, a, a logical education for him and it's certainly paid off. But your question was really about uh, sort of the design part, uh, like, is, and I, so if I can read into your question, yeah. is it appropriate that we put so much focus on design in schools? And I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert in, in how we could, I'm, I'm certain that we could improve architectural education. However, I don't think it's necessarily tragic that we focus or over put put more of a focus on on these sort of more high-minded theoretical design concepts in school sure. and that's really the time first of all that's if you're going to do that that's the time to do it mm -hmm. and second of all i'm certain that i would not have had the competence or really the ability to understand a more technical education had it been offered at the, especially not at the same time as this 
sort of uh, a very good more point. theoretical design and understanding spatial relationships. And so I think it's, I mean, I think it's okay that we have a bit of a, that I think it's okay that education doesn't match practice. Okay. You know, exactly, exactly match it or, you know, well, we spend X amount of percentage of time doing this. Therefore we should spend that same percentage doing the same, the same thing in, in school. So I think it's okay. Um, could it be a little, a little bit better? Yeah, I'm certain it could be better also, if only to give people a sense of the, the broadness of the profession and that it's okay to not, um, to, to not, to not be on the star architect path. Exactly. And there's still room in this profession for you. There's all kinds of stuff, uh, ways that you can contribute, yep. really contribute, not just that you can get by and make a living, but that you can, that you can contribute to our environment in, in positive, positive ways that really make that improve people's quality of life and yeah. um, contributes to increasing environmental responsibility. And there's all kinds of things that, that we can do. Um, but uh, I don't, I think it's okay that it's a little, that it's a little lopsided, maybe a lot <laughs> lopsided. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. And listen, it is something where, especially on the technical side, until you have the experience, until you actually see it physically in real life, you know, you don't begin to connect the drawing with the, you know, with the actual built environment. And so that takes time. It takes experience. It really does. And that's that's why you don't get good at the, this profession until you, you've had that experience for a while. I wish that were something a little bit more that our culture, not just within architecture, but broadly, that our culture appreciated that more. Um, that I think is very difficult when you get out of school and you're, and you're pretty young, you start working at a firm. I'm sure lots of your listeners can relate to feeling really clueless and let down mm-hmm. where you think you, you think you should know how to do stuff and you don't. Right. And it's demoralizing. It's very hard to keep going to work You've been, and you're being paid to do stuff that you don't feel competent <laughs> to do, which I've, I've been in that situation for a long time. And yep. it's um, it's uncomfortable. It's demoralizing. It's difficult. I, so if there's if there's an area that I think could really we could really work on is sort of. I guess, encouraging a, a culture of learning and making that clear that this is a the, this is you're making in, in choosing this profession, you're making a commitment to learning throughout your entire profession. Sure. Um, I don't think I appreciated that, like how much effort goes into developing your understanding of, of like stuff that may appear basic to other people long into your career. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's- like I study still I'm an adult and I study. And I think that's probably true of a lot of a lot of architects, you study, you learning things, you're studying constantly, you know, everything. And, yeah. and, and there's new technologies, things change. And I think back to not to keep going back to the education side, but, but I think one thing that we do well at my firm is, you know, we, we try to work a lot with the, the, the universities that have these work study programs where they're coming right out of school within their first semester and they're doing, you know, four or six week internships and we, you know, we get them in. And th- the, a lot of those people that we've, you know, had as interns early on in their architecture career are, actually work for us now because, you know, we threw them in very gently. They knew they didn't know anything. We knew they didn't know anything. So it's not like they had already graduated. 
you know, they they kind of develop their their confidence over time. And by the time they graduate, they've actually worked for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours at an architecture firm. And therefore, they know a little bit of what to expect. And they have a little bit of an idea of, oh, this is what's going to be expected of me. And and they obviously, they don't know what they don't know. But it makes that transition a lot, lot smoother. Oh, yeah. And it helps people choose sort of find areas of interest to them early on. That yeah. certainly happened to me. I worked for a few firms as an intern while I was in while I was still in school. And some of them appealed to me and others did not. So it was I think those are those early experiences are really are really important and helpful. Yep. They also give you hope. Like they gave <laughs> me hope that, OK, well, I don't like this studio or I don't like and I don't like this professor, but that's okay. Like the whole profession doesn't rest on this one dude's, you know, method of teaching. Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent. So, so kind of our audience would love to get to know you a little bit uh, better. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about growing up your childhood, you know, kind of what, you know, what inspired you to, to do what you do now? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm pretty similar to a lot of people. I kind of, uh, I fell into it almost uh, accident. I mean, I don't know. It, the, the, the cliche is like, well, I played with Lego a lot and <laughs> therefore I knew I would be an architect. I was like drawing um, as a kid and I was pretty good, which is sort of funny because I don't think through school that was a real strength of mine at all. Um, but uh, at least not comparatively, but communicating, drawing as a means of communication, I think has always been interesting to me. Um, I didn't, I guess I didn't understand, I didn't understand architecture, despite having family members who were in the profession. Mm -hmm. I didn't really, I didn't understand the idea of drawing to make a living. And um, I sort of had an early interest in, uh, I I was interested in a lot of things, I guess. Yeah, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't one thing that really stood out. I kind of thought that I would go into quote unquote business. Right. Like whatever that meant, like just you go to an office and you wear a suit and you come back and you have made money and you've done something. Um, <laughs> so I didn't. And, but then I did that. I went into a mark. My first job out of college was in um, marketing for a big grocery chain in um, in Texas and Mexico. And um, anyway, I did not like it. I wasn't good at it and I didn't like it. I mean, I, I had a good experience in a lot of other ways. I met, I made wonderful friends and sure. I learned a whole bunch of stuff, but I just, it did not, it didn't appeal to me. And I, but one thing I did like about it was that it was connected to something real. Like it was in the, so I was at a marketing role, which I didn't really relate to very well, but it was, I was connected to, because it was groceries. Like everybody knows grocery stores. Everybody knows, everybody's interested in their food. Um, people really get attached to their neighborhood grocery store where they yeah. have very strong opinions about, oh, yeah. about all kinds of stuff related to that. And that I did like. So when I, I didn't know what I was going to do, I ended up going back to school. Uh, I ended up actually taking some, I was doing a different marketing job in Boston and I took some classes at Boston Architectural College, honestly, just to make friends. I was interested in architecture. I liked it. And I thought, well, I'll take this to to meet people and make friends. I found it hard to, I was struggling a little bit in, in terms of making friends. And, um, and then I got there and I was like, wow, this is really cool. I really, I really like this. And it's a real, there's a real connection between what you do and the physical world. Everybody has direct experiences with buildings, um, between where they live and where they, where they work and the public spaces that they occupy. And, 
um, being a part of something that was so, um, so physical was appealing to me. And I, 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 anyway, so I took a few continuing education classes there and at Boston Architectural College and thought, well, I like this profession. What if I, what would it take for me to grow in this profession? And what did you what study in undergraduate? I studied sociology and French. Oh, okay. Not related at all. It was a very good economy then also. And life just seemed, especially for young people, right? If you've never known anything other than other than easy, good stuff, it just seemed like I'd get a job in quote unquote business, whatever that was. Right, right. And um, yeah, no special training required. You just go do stuff and things just happen for you. But um, I, I found that I'm much more comfortable with a profession that has a defined skill set sure. that I can practice. And um, anyway, that appealed to me. So that's that's how I ended up doing what I ended up doing. So now your father, you mentioned him, is is also in the business, right? He is a he's he's really a legend in the business, right? <laughs> Uh, as far as you know, the, the building science goes. Um, so I'm sure that had a little bit of you know somewhere in your in your in your brain that had a little bit of inspiration in terms of going into the profession. I mean, yes and no. I feel I guess this is uh, one of the one of the sort of sad things in life when when you're close to something great, it's you you can be dismissive of it. So it it certainly helped me once I'd already decided to be in the profession, but it did not appeal. Like seeing my dad do this did not, it did not make it more appealing. That's interesting. I don't know. Who's my dad? Like whatever. He's just that dude. But um, (laughs) what really made it kind of come alive was one of my early work experiences. I was working for a fantastic architect in uh, New York city called Chris Benedict. Mm -hmm. Um, This was in a, a, it was a summer. I wasn't taking courses in the summer. And so I went and worked for her. In New York City, and she was designing extraordinarily energy efficient buildings. Um, she was she did she was like the she was working on the first multifamily passive house. And by, t- by the time it got finished, it was the second multifamily passive house okay. in um, in the U.S. Somebody else beat her by a few a few months, I think. But um, but anyway, it was it was really exciting. We hadn't done we hadn't applied the passive house standard to multifamily buildings in the United States. And Chris was working on low-income buildings, which further constrains your options. Mm -hmm. And you cannot do anything extraordinary from an energy perspective, especially given those constraints, without understanding building science and and construction. And that's when that really started to click, when I started to see what my dad did as not just valuable in it, in and of itself, but as a tool to allow us to do really cool things with buildings. Yeah. And um, so that's when it's so, so my poor dad has worked so hard in this and has shared his profession with me and, and has been so generous, but it wasn't until I basically learned about it from someone else that I was like, Oh, that's actually really cool. (laughs) Now I think you might get a kick out of that. I talk to him all the time now. He's, it's been a wonderful joy to, um, to get to know my dad in a professional capacity, not just a personal capacity. That's been, that's been very fun. Um, but it wasn't something that I pursued initially. <laughs> it, uh, and have you it, worked uh, with him in the past and at, you know, directly? It did, yeah. I, I worked for a couple of years for his company, building science corporation, doing okay. consulting work. I now work for myself, but, um, but I worked for a little while, um, which was great. It was wonderful. I worked with, um, 
he's got some some other great people who he's um, he works with, and it's it's was it was fantastic. So what uh, what exactly is building science, and what is a building scientist? Can you can you define that? Oh man, um, <laughs> pro- probably badly. Uh, I'm still on my first cup of tea, mm. but I guess it's um, I guess it's using what we know about physics to inform design decisions, to make more intelligent design decisions. Um, So the building science doesn't tell you how to build a good building in and of itself. Uh, The the physics doesn't care how we build a building, but understanding the physics better helps us make better decisions regarding our use of limited resources. So understanding about heat and energy flow, for example, helps us understand how to design walls and roofs and windows and the way that they connect together in a way that maximizes things that we want and minimizes things that we don't want. Um, So maximizing energy efficiency, for example, and um, minimizing cost or or risk. So everybody, it's, it's sort of, easy to spend more money to reduce your risk. If you have infinite resources, you can, you can reduce your risk, Mm -hmm. but how do you find your sort of sweet spot for risk? How do you let the warehouse be the warehouse and the art museum be the art museum? Both of these things store things, right? right? They're both storage facilities. And of course there are different aesthetic things, but what about the, the layers that separate the inside from the outside? Um, how can we use physics to understand how to how to select the best materials and arrange them in the most favorable way to um, to achieve what it is we want to achieve? Yeah, yeah. And so, so I'm thinking about kind of how we work as architects, right? And um, you know, one of the things that we have in in my firm is we have an R and D lab, right? And we have this sort of patent pending process, and we're developing technology, and we spend a lot of time on the the Revit model, right? We've gone from mm-hmm. CAD to Revit, and so we have this smart model. We have all of this information. We're putting it into the model, um, and we always talk in that lab about you know, well, what's next for us? You know, how can we move the profession forward? And we always say, well, the the, the main thing would be it would be awesome because we've put so much effort into this model. The main thing would be to actually give the model over so that someone could build from the model. Because right now we put all this information in, but yet we just flatten it out uh, into a bunch of lines and print it out on big giant sheets of paper and hand it over to a contractor, just like we did, you know, when we drew with pencil on mylar, right? I mean, there's really no difference at the the end product. Um, but I would argue that architects really don't know how to build, right? They 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 know in theory how things work. They know how to draw it. They know sort of almost like a the ideal scenario of something, right? When I uh, when I was a an, an intern, I remember my uh, the guy that I worked for. He did residential. Amazing guy. He also owned a construction company, which I think really helped. You know, so he designed it, but then he built it himself. And so he would always say things like, "Well." don't ever close the dimensions because 
it's never going to be that dimension from start to finish. You know, walls are not exactly straight or, you know, try to put as little information as you can in certain areas. Just tell the contractor, this is what ideally you want it to look like, right? You want this to align and not to align. You know, don't give them, you know, and never put a, you know, an eighth of an inch on a dimension string, right? I mean, the, the contractor will laugh at you, right? This is like ridiculous. So, and then, and then as you work in the field, right, I remember thinking, I would draw these um, these details, right? And it was the first time it really kind of struck me was I'm, I went to a job site and they were doing a water test and they actually had a whole, you know, uh, waterproofing system set up and they were flooding the water. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. They like actually fill this thing up with water. Yet I'm the one that drew it and I'm the one that, you know, wrote the note on there that said, <laughs> yeah. you know, this the flood test has to be X amount of this and this is what the waterproofing is. But I didn't understand it until I actually saw it. So, you know, talk to me a little bit a little bit about that, kind of that disconnect between, you know, what the architect draws and then what actually is built. Yeah, one of the, one of the first internships I had actually was um, they had me reviewing submittals, which was hilarious to me, and I didn't get it. I was like, well, how do you know? Like, on what basis are you reviewing the submittal? Like, how I'm how do I know that this is right? I don't even understand these words are English, but I don't understand them. Right. And I'm fluent in English, but I don't like what the heck on what basis do I evaluate this stuff? Um, anyway, yeah, I think we, we all can relate to uh, a lot of a lot of that. But um, yeah, building is, um, is tricky and as sophisticated as we're getting with our modeling. I think that we're really every building is essentially a prototype it is a one-off. So we model it, but we don't, we, we don't know, we don't actually end up doing a lot to connect the model to the reality afterwards because it's, it's finished, right? It's over. We don't, so we don't continue to get data and study the model versus, um, how like occupied, how the building is occupied and how it performs. We typically don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly don't do it in wide, in a widespread way. Um, I hope that we start doing that because we can fully learn a great deal from these. But right now, the, the modeled reality, the model world doesn't align with the, what act, the as-built condition in sometimes hilariously enormous mm -hmm. ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think what we have right now is the appearance of precision and sophistication uh, where, where there isn't. Um, although I, I don't mean to say that we're not sophisticated because we are like, what we do is incredible. Oh, absolutely. Like, what we, I mean, it's really cool, but it doesn't, these things we have this in model world, you have the appearance of precision down to an eighth of an inch. Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't exist the way we think it does in the real world. The real world ends up being sophisticated in other ways. Um, for instance, that nobody actually, no single person knows how to build our buildings right. and yet they all get built. Yep. Like even your GC has no, like they don't, I mean, if you really reduced it down to, down to everything, like how to make the tools, how to like what goes into all of the different, all of the different trades, 
I think you can, you can have an understanding as, as we do on the architecture side, like of what trades are required, but no single person understands all of those trades. Even the trades people actually working on it, maybe <laughs> only under, they understand their part, right? But not- and Somehow it uh, all comes together. And somehow it all comes together. It's like yeah. miraculous. Yeah. It's incredibly complex and very cool. And it, it's just, it, I marvel at it. Yeah. But um, but yeah, the the false precision that we have through modeling is something kind of interesting. And I think actually it's dangerous in that we think that particularly when it comes to energy related stuff, um, energy and other and other risk related things like moisture related risk, we are in some ways our models are very sophisticated, but we as users don't know what realistic inputs to give the models to, to accurately predict performance in, in the field. Sure. And if we're making, if we're, if we're going to talk about serious things like, like indoor air quality, it's a, it's a serious health issue and energy mm-hmm. also uh, a serious issue with respect to environmental responsibility and climate change. If we're going to, if we're going to contend with these serious issues, um, we're going to need to under, understand a lot of things better than we currently do. Sure. And we're going to want to make sure that the the things we're using to make these decisions are actually producing the results that we desire. Um, you know, approximate results aren't, aren't good enough for, for us. So uh, I think it's an area that will be very interesting to see as, as we develop it. But right now I think, Bizarrely, as sophisticated as the building industry seems right now, I think we're just barely scratching the surface of of what we're what we're going to be able to do. Yeah. So let, let's talk. Let's. I want to jump ahead to kind of just piggybacking on what you're saying. There was two things that I do want to ask you about specifically, and I know obviously you're not a climatologist kind of thing, but you know I, I mentioned it before the, the the Hurricane Ida that just came through, and also the Surfside Florida building collapse. Oh right? yes, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so if, if we start with the the hurricane, right? I mean, you know, where I live here in the Northeast, I, I think almost the the water damage was so much worse than than um, even what happened in Louisiana, where it, where it initially struck. And I think it's because, you know, there's obviously climate change has a lot to do with it. I think there's, I would assume it's also just we were not, our infrastructure is not set up for the amount of water that came in. Um, I know people in my firm there, you know, several of their houses were, one of them was completely destroyed. The, the yeah. person had to be rescued off of, um, off of her roof. Yeah. I mean, out of control. And, you know, but with that amount of water, I mean, how do you, one of, one of my partners whose, you know, house was pretty badly damaged was saying to me, well, <clears throat> how do I prevent this from happening again? You know, and the, I, it's a tough, it's a tough one because, you know, six, seven feet of water, how do you prevent that from happening again? Is there any, you know, envelope design or site mitigation that could really ever stop that? I mean, there's, to answer your question, yes, there's all kinds of things that can mitigate that, that risk. And this is again, where to come back to the idea of building science, helping us make better decisions about risk, but building science itself doesn't have an answer. It doesn't say, well, you should be doing it this way and not this other way. It's here's how our buildings respond when exposed to these kinds of 
loads forces mm-hmm. um you decide and that's where stuff ends up being very difficult for us because there are a lot of well okay to, first of all we fare much much better in north america when exposed to these types of events than many than people do in many other places in the world oh absolutely and one of the reasons for that is that our building codes are actually quite good. They are not perfect. There's tons of, they're, they're an evolution and we're constantly working on improving those. But I think in general, that's an area of real success and our code process is open. So you and I can participate in this. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I'd like to start doing now that I feel more competent in my profession is getting involved in the, in the, in the code writing process. Um, now you don't, you have to, you don't get paid to do it. I mean, some people get paid to do it, right. If they work for a manufacturer or something like that, but that is an open system. And there are lots of architects and engineers who volunteer their time in, in making these codes better. And we owe them a real debt of gratitude in making the effects of these, these, terrible events, not worse. Um, again, not perfect. We still have a lot to do, but that is an open process. And uh, I like, I encourage anybody listening to, to get involved. Um, I encourage myself to get involved in it, but, um, but that's, we have a pretty good, we have a pretty good system for that right now. What's difficult. So that said though, what's difficult is managing sort of our, our present interests over our future interests. And this is a, a difficulty in all kinds of areas of life, right? There are a whole bunch of things that I could do today that would be great for me long-term, but not awesome for me perhaps today. Right now, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have an entire diet industry based on people prioritizing present comfort over long-term health. Right. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of this in um, in all kinds of industries, but with respect to architecture, we we try to find a sweet spot to balance this stuff. And even in structural engineering or or um, fire fire control, we don't engineer buildings to never ever fail. We design them to withstand the most common forces we expect that they'll be exposed to. And to fail if they fail in a way that's designed to minimize loss of life. Yep. And the same goes for water-related damage. We don't design buildings to never ever deal with water, water, but we we certainly can make decisions. We design them to withstand the most common forces, and we should design them in ways that are easy to clean or repair after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, now this gets really complicated or can get really complicated um, with respect to housing. I think uh, Florida is a really great example for us in general with respect to hurricane resistance. And you can contrast the way they build in Florida with the way that they build in Houston and Louisiana for some interesting sort of practical applications of this. So in Florida, for example, it's very common to build the first floor out of concrete block yep. and upper stories is traditional wood frame like we're used to in Houston, um, which also gets hurricanes, it's, it's wood frame. Now, when a wood frame building floods, it's 
a lot harder to repair and um, mitigate that damage, you're throwing a lot of stuff out Mm -hmm. Uh, because we essentially have to treat flood water as sewage. Yep. And I mean, it's anyway, so, so that's, that's one big difference Now we, there's nothing stopping people in Houston from building with concrete block, Mm. but it's expensive. It's different. It requires a big change. And a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to prioritize their long-term goals over their short-term interests in that way. And it ends up being this, this compromise between what we mandate through codes um, so what we, t- we tell people, you don't get to have a, dis- a say in this. This is how you're building. Um, so some decisions are like that, right? And then sure. others are, well, this is up to you. You have to decide what, like ha- how how resistant you want your your building to be. And it's not it's not so simple. In the wake of a disaster, people are like, well, it should be the law. <laughs> well, getting people on board with that when they have to spend their own money or um, or the cost of cost of housing rise like is elevated as a result. Those are those are difficult issues to contend with. Um, in terms of completely practical things, one incredibly helpful thing in terms of making buildings housing particularly more resilient after hurricanes is if we can keep the roof on our buildings. Mm. If we can just mm. keep the roof on the building. So much else tends to be a lot easier. Florida um, does a good job with that, though. I mean, after Hurricane Andrew, yeah. they really changed those codes and their you know, roofs don't go flying off and in they, Florida. It's not just changing the code. It's changing how they're enforced and adopted. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's having code inspectors that are given the resources to do their jobs properly. And I mean, not just financial resources, but also the intellectual educational resources do they know what to, are they trained properly to know what to look for um you know we can help people do their jobs well or we can we can set them up for for failure and and i think in florida this is before my time i was i was a little girl when hurricane andrew happened um but it wasn't just that the codes were inadequate it's my understanding is that the codes were also not enforced properly um, but anyway, keeping keeping roofs on buildings is really helpful and keeping um, the way we roof matters as well. So not just structurally keeping the, the roof on, but um, using something like a, a fully adhered membrane under under shingles rather than just a, um, you know, a, a loose, yeah. a loose laid uh, roofing underlayment means that if you lose some shingles, you can tolerate that you're still dried in number one. And then number two, a lot of the damage people don't realize, well, I think they do when they're exposed to a disaster like this, it doesn't happen during the storm. It's after. So if you can't get someone to repair your roof immediately, mm-hmm. you're, you're exposing your house to continual damage yep. in the you know, weeks, months after the storm. If you've got a fully adhered membrane, which is more expensive, than, than the typical just plain roofing, plastic roofing underlayment. Right. It's just packed into place. Um, but if you can't get someone to work on your roof for months, I mean, we had we had the tornadoes in, in Dallas like over a year ago, and there are roofs that are still tarped. 
Yeah, that just uh, long-term problems are going to occur from that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, at this point, I think they've given up. I mean, they're they're starting <laughs> over, right? They didn't address it in time, so now it's so it's anyway. It's these things end up being complicated and involving a lot of a lot of trade-offs. So it's it's difficult to find these sweet spots, but you can find that you're you're much better positioned to find the sweet spots if you have an understanding of what these trade-offs are and can present them to your clients. Um, a lot of times our clients aren't inclined to listen to this stuff. You know, when you're, when you're dealing with somebody building a new house or a new building, they're thinking of all of the wonderful things that are going to happen for them in their house and in their life. They don't want to talk to you about, well, what if there's a hurricane for mm -hmm. the most part? Uh, but if we as a profession can find ways of educating ourselves and presenting this useful information in a, in a, in an appropriate and sensitive way to our clients. I think that's one way that we can make, make things better. Yeah, so um, this is, I think this is, we are, we are seeing more and more of this. Oh, for sure. And, uh, yeah. So, there, so there, there, are, there are real things that we can do. Keeping the roof on is really big and making it, um, making moisture damage on the first floors of, of buildings easier to, to clean and mitigate after the fact is a, is another, um, is another important thing to do. And there's, there's all kinds of strategies related to that. So that, that kind of takes me to, you know, your building science fight club, right. <laughs> and, the, and, and what you do, um, beyond that. So, I mean, I, I named my podcast, the anti-architect. I mean, most people get it. It's catchy. Um, I love the profession. It's provocative, that kind of thing. You know, <clears throat> first love the name building science fight club, sort of how did you establish this? Um, do people get it? And, and just tell us a little bit about what, what it is that you do, not only on that, but also on your, on the professional side, as you now have your own company. So, uh, so Building Science Fight Club really started out of this lopsided, this, it occurred to me, so I started in this very technical part of the profession, and it occurred to me many years into this that a lot of my friends who took more traditional architecture paths, career paths, they weren't getting, that my friends were not getting this kind of technical information, and it was something that frustrated and intimidated them. They didn't like going to job sites and being pushed around sometimes by contractors uh, or, or just unsure of whether they're being pushed around or not mm -hmm. and, and wanting to be open-minded and listen to a contractor's position on something or a substitution request or whatever, but not feeling like they had the skills to really evaluate that whatever was being proposed properly and feeling like that they couldn't even, even going back to their firms, they feel, felt like they couldn't honestly engage even with their principals and more senior people because they didn't, didn't want to look dumb. Um, and were dissatisfied with the answers that they were getting. I think it was this, it is this giant, the emperor has no clothes mm -hmm. um, situation. Anyway, so I did know a lot about construction and was still learning a lot about construction. And so I started taking photos on job sites and drawing on the photos and just marking them up and describing whatever technical principle was at play in the, 
in the caption for my friends from architecture school. So, and the name building science hookups, it was a joke. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a joke. Cause like, come on, no one's literally gonna <laughs> really fight about this stuff, but it did sort of feel like a secret, like the sort of, uh, I guess in the way that the movie was, is this sort of secret club. It right, felt right. there was an element of secrecy and sort of nerdiness to it. Um, anyway, so the name was a joke, but it's, it really did start for people that I personally knew. Um, but then it grew to, to people. It turns out that n- not only did my friends have real questions about construction and continuing education type stuff that really wasn't being addressed in the formal model for continuing education that our profession has. So most continuing education in our profession is really run by materials manufacturers. And some of them are very, very good at explaining building science and construction, um, but most of them are not. And it's also true that they have a different interest than than architects. Mm. Now that doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. And I'm very grateful to, I've learned all kinds of things from, from great manufacturers who present stuff in, um, in pretty fair ways. We've all had experiences where things have been presented to us in unfair ways as well. But, um, but anyway, I, that's the sort of majority of continuing education in our profession. And I think there's what, what this, crazy little Instagram feed revealed was a, was a, an opening or a, uh, something missing in our, in our continuing education. People really did desire a different kind of education that really filled this, this gap. The, learning about construction in particular, it happens on the job. And well, what do you, on your job, you've got contractors who you may or may not have a collegial relationship with you've got your client and you've got your boss mm-hmm. and i don't know about you but i don't do my best learning in front of authority figures yes. i do my best learning when i feel really comfortable and free to ask ask questions and so that's that's what this i think it just really tapped into tapped into that desire to to really learn from from each other and ask questions and not be humiliated for not already knowing the answer. Um, so that's that's how it started. Do people get it? Increasingly, no. I think when things start small, there uh, people understand that it's a it's a community and that there's a back and forth and a give and take. Um, the larger it's gotten, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just overly sensitive. I mean, certainly I'm overly sensitive, <laughs> but I think the larger something gets, it people view it, some people now view it as sort of an institution and it's not an institution. It's, it's me. It's right. just one person. I'm having this conversation with you in my kitchen. Right. Like, right. This is not. Same with me. That's, that's exactly how I right. feel. You know, it's uh yes. Do I want to be critical of the architecture profession? Yes. But in a good way, I just don't want to sit here and trash architects. That right. wasn't the intention here at all, but you do. Yes. And you open yourself up for all sorts of criticism when you put yourself out there and, and that's what it is, but you are, listen, your site is amazing and it's wonderful. And I think you're doing, you know, something totally different and doing it very practically um, that as you said people are comfortable they look at it they we you know we know it in our in our firm and then tell me a little bit about what you do professionally and I know you also do some some let's call it real continuing education kind of work (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, so, so what I am is a building science consultant. So I help people, either architects or often developers, but I, I'm working with a design team usually, sure. even if, if, if the architect doesn't hold the contract, I'm working primarily with architects to develop their drawings in a way that's sensible and matches the design intent from a building enclosure perspective. So how are we detailing these windows? Is mm -hmm. that really reasonable? That disconnect you mentioned between what we model and what actually gets installed. Let's minimize that difference, yep. that delta in ways that in in ways that matter. Um, you know, there are some ways that it doesn't matter, but there are some things that that do matter. Um, so let's let's make sure that we get those done right. Having having projects bid properly really matters. So the way that we draw our details and call them out can influence um, can influence how well bid a project is. Yeah, how absolutely. clear is the division of labor among the trades? Um, and if you if you simplify that, if your if your job is actually bid properly, it reduces a lot of a lot of technical problems in the field, and then also it makes your clients a lot happier because your construction is more predictable, fewer change orders, that kind of stuff. Anyway, so that's my in my. Uh, consulting role. I'll work on on those types of projects, residential. Um, I do a lot more written now that I'm working for myself. I think this is true for a lot of uh, sole professionals. You you don't have as a sole professional, you don't have the resources of a big firm. Sure. So often, I'm working on a lot more single family homes as opposed to when I was with a firm. I were I did a lot more multifamily work. I don't I don't think I probably would ever work on by myself, a, a tower again. Okay. Uh, maybe I would, but it, it probably is a little bit less practical. I still do some multifamily work, even big multifamily, but not, um, so not as with, much as I used to. Would the architect hire you to, uh, let's say do a quality control kind of look or, uh, you know, um, um, you know, hey, here's my set of drawings. Tell me kind of from a constructability point of view, does this work, does this not work? Or is it is it that you're involved more from the inception of the project? I mean, obviously, you'd want to be involved from the inception of the, everyone wants to, so the, to be so from the, the beginning. Ones, That's the best, the best way. relationships work best when when I'm involved early because decisions are especially enclosure related decisions. First of all, they're kind of easy. The earlier you get on, they're they're pretty. If you make them at the beginning, they're really easy because right. they don't have they don't have the same cost implications when you make them at the beginning because you're, you're basing everything off of more reasonable, a more reasonable set of assumptions. Sure. So you get the big things right first, then you can change the details around later. But in terms of major systems, like what kind of roof are we going to put on this building? How is it going to be insulated? Is it insulated on the underside or on, on top of the roof deck? Uh, what's the general wall assembly? Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. So they're relatively easy decisions to make. So I don't, I'm not very busy early in the design process, but it makes things a lot easier if I okay. am. Um, but yeah, sometimes the architect will hold the contract. Um, I find that that is usually the most helpful that the architect actually holds the contract, but the client ends up paying for it. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Um, I find that that in particularly in single family works very well because it's, better to have uh, professional conversations between me consultants and say you architect that happen out of the client's view. Sure. The, the client isn't equipped to 
have these kinds of technical discussions. So it's best for us to kind of narrow the choices down first and then present the options and the, and the logic to the client if they're interested. Yep. Um, sometimes, you know, they have varying degrees of interest. A lot of times with people's homes, they're very interested. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, indoor air quality, that durability, resilience, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're interested. They're, they're raising their kids in this house. They're, they're, they care, but it's best from a design development perspective to be, to have a very close relationship with the architect because nobody likes, I mean, speaking of architecture school, like nobody likes being criticized in front of other people or even quote unquote constructive criticism like we receive in, in studio pinups. Um, people don't, that's, that's difficult. And so anyway, so I like working as closely with the architect so that we hash this stuff out together and it doesn't feel <laughs> like you're being judged in front of a, in front of a client. Um, but in, in commercial projects, usually my contract is held by the developer and okay. I'm effectively a peer review. Got it. Okay. Um, even when that happens, I try to really establish a good relationship with the architect a personal relationship with the architect early on, because again, it we don't do our best work typically when we're feeling yeah criticized under, yeah. under a microscope. We don't, yeah. we don't feel good about that kind of stuff. Yeah. We do pretty good work if we know it's being checked <laughs> and we know somebody cares, yep. but there's a difference between somebody being a cheerleader and helping you to achieve a goal than somebody who's sitting there with their arms crossed, just waiting for you to screw up and humiliate you. So anyway, so that's, so that's one thing I do. I find I, I really only became a sole practitioner about a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago. Um, I took a, this is a longer story, but I'm an immigrant and I had a little bit of a forced sabbatical when I, married my husband, I was finally eligible to apply for a green card and I couldn't work for, there was a period of time I couldn't work. And oh, anyway, okay. but, um, but I ended up as a result of this crazy interest in education through Instagram, which is free. I teach people for free because I enjoy teaching and I, I do, I really think that our profession would benefit from this. And I, I genuinely want people to be successful and understand this stuff and, and, I feel like they've been lied to by a lot of people who want to convince them that these things are really hard so that they have to hire. I think a lot of consultants do that. Maybe they don't even do it on purpose, but they're like, this stuff is so hard. Therefore you must hire me where I'm like, okay, this stuff is kind of hard, but you don't actually have to understand all of it and you can do it yourself. And I'm going to tell you how. And anyway, so I do that because I genuinely like it, but I've, I've found professionally that, um, that I can make money teaching, like directly teaching architects who are willing to directly invest in their own architectural education, not, not accumulating their CE hours from own exclusively from lunch and learns by uh, manufacturers. Not uh, truly, not that there's anything wrong with that. People work very hard and sometimes you just got to enjoy a sandwich. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, but that's not true for everyone all the time. And so I teach a course on building science on, um, online. It's, uh, it's available on demand. I developed that during my, during my hiatus from nice. work. And, um, that's been really successful. People have responded so well to it. It's about nine hours. And I find like, I'm sort of amazed that I really think that this 
big area that really, that architects really struggle with can be covered fairly in nine hours. Wow. Like you give me nine hours, I will present this to you in a coherent way that you can use immediately in your day-to-day practice. And it covers 99% of the situations that you're going to come across. You know, there's always going to be these exceptions and the and weird stuff. And okay, so go hire someone for that weird thing. For the, I want to install a full-size basketball court in my basement next to a lake in the Arctic, whatever. Right. Yeah, hire a consultant for that one. But for 99% of the stuff that you see day to day, you cover it in, cover it in a nine-hour course, you can get it. Um, anyways, people have responded really well, and I've, I've really enjoyed that. And so now I spend a lot more of my time teaching uh, and, and professional energy teaching as well. And it's kind of nice too, because it's, it's made me able to continue the Instagram because the Instagram is that I, I teach. So I, for people unfamiliar with Instagram or for, with building science fight club on Instagram, I teach, I take a topic and I'll teach on that topic once a week. I post only on Saturdays because they take a long, they take me a long time I'm to put sure. them together. I'm sure. So, um, but what it being paid offline to teach means that I can invest in how I present a particular topic and I kind of test drive it on Instagram. That's great. And see how people understand it and kind of um, sharpen the way I teach it. And I can teach it in a different context in more detail because Instagram's one, you know, you're very limited. I get 10 images and um, and a little bit and 300 words to teach something. <laughs> right. Um, I get I get more time if I'm if I'm being paid to Teaching. go teach somebody. I'll do design charrettes for firms. So oh, nice. An architecture firm will hire me. I'll come out. I'll take a look at a few of their representative projects in advance, and then we'll just hash out over a day. Uh, like we'll come up with sort of some standard details for them. It's like standard foundation details, standard wall details, standard roof details, because most firms are not, they're not reinventing the wheel each time. They have, you know, and they're, they're general notes. So we'll get sort of a a standard general notes section and then standard details and explain why they work that way. So we'll mark them up and then they get the, they, they, at the, at the end, I'll give them a sort of summary so that they can they can use that as a jumping off point for whatever, either they use it exactly because it applies to their next project or they're like, Oh, okay. So we did this window in this way for this project, but this other project has a different constraint and therefore I'm going to change it in this way. And now they know they, they're not just recycling this detail from, you know, the last 20 years. Right. It, they know, they know what, what the pieces, what the lines on the, on the page mean for them and, and they have notes on on what they might want to change or or why. So anyway, well, that's awesome. So, anyway, so, that kind of stuff ends up ends up sort of subsidizing the uh, <laughs> the Instagram stuff. Well, we definitely have to hire you in our firm for for a, a design charrette for sure. So, uh, last question, uh, bringing it all back around. Uh, if you had to do it differently as far as your career is concerned, what might you have changed? Oh my gosh, like thousands of things. <laughs> So yeah, how much time have you got here? <laughs> I, I would have started in architecture sooner. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to say what detours end up 
end up contributing down the road. Yeah. No. Right. Exactly. And all sorts of magic ways, mm. but I love this profession so much. I wish I started sooner, like That's high awesome. school. I wish I started in high school, That's elementary awesome. school even. I don't know. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being my guest on the anti-architect uh, podcast. There's obviously a ton more that we could cover. Um, so uh, to read, to see and read more about Christine Williamson's Building Science Fight Club, you know, check out her uh, Instagram, you know, at Building Science Fight Club. Um, and then, as far as your um, your 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 personal website, what what is that website? It's Christine-Williamson.com. Perfect. Okay, cool. But you can just Google Christine Williamson Building Science. People are. They know how to use you Google. You find it. Exactly. Exactly. Out. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. And I, I this was this was amazing. And as I said, we're going to we're going to hire you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you.